This OPI podcast was recorded at an earlier date. Some material may be outdated and or mentioned under different circumstances. Consult your local health authorities for the latest on COVID-19. The Minutia Men Celebrity Interview is up next. But first, take a listen to this other fine OPI show. This is Minutia Men with Rick and Dave. On this week's Minutia Men with Rick and Dave, we have a St. Patrick's Day special, Dave. Tim O'Shea will be here from the Emerald Isle. That's Tim playing in the background right there. He's making me sad. He's got some very sad songs for us, but that's what St. Patrick's Day is all about, sadness. All that in unlimited tangents on this week's Minutia Men. The Tony Lasano Podcast, an OPI production on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. RadioMisfits.com. The following is the Tony Lasano Podcast, an OPI production on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. This is the Minutia Men Celebrity Interview with Rick Kempfer and Dave Stern. The following is a Tony Lasano Podcast, an OPI show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. This is the Minutia Men Celebrity Interview with Rick and Dave. All right, so we have a best-selling author on the phone millions waiting to go. Million yes, he wrote uh, Politically Correct Bedtime Stories. That was his first book, which, Dave, do you know that it sold more than 2.5 million copies in the United States? I think that's about 2.5 million more copies than the Balding Handbook, The Five Stages of Grieving for Your Hair. It also has been translated into 20 languages. 20 more languages than the Balding Handbook. I think 19 more. (laughs) I'm pretty sure you got English. Good boy. Uh, 65 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. He's written, uh, you know, other ones uh, once... Once Upon a More Enlightened Time, Politically Correct Holiday Stories. Those were on the New York Times list. Uh, this man is a... Uh He's a gazillionaire. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, he, well, he's charging us sixteen hundred bucks to do this. Did <laughs> well, you know I, I'm just excited to have him on, uh, uh, like an, an actual legitimate author on our show. Welcome to James Finn Garner. How are you, Jim? Good morning. I'm still waiting for the check from you guys. By the way, <laughs> it's in the mail. Yeah, you can wait oh, all yeah. you want, buddy. Uh, <laughs> hey, the real tapes. Your name. James Finn Garner. Okay. Mm-hmm. You got the middle name in there. Did you put the middle name in there so people wouldn't confuse you with the Rockford Files guy? Or are you just a pretentious author that needs a middle name? What, what is the story well, with the fan? Uh, both are probably true. <laughs> the, um, the, I, I was a member of uh, SAG after for a little while in the 90s. And yes, there was a fellow named James Garner uh, who was using my name out ah, there yes. in the in the TV and film world. So I uh, decided to, you know, figure out a different middle name. And then when I uh, sold a book and I decided to go take my pretentious actor name and make it my pretentious author name. Oh, okay. So what was your favorite uh, James Garner uh, role? Uh, the uh... Oh, back, back in the day, I liked uh, Support Your Local Sheriff. Oh, that's a good one. When I was a child. Yeah, you know, yeah. for me, it was Great Escape. You ever see that movie? Yeah. Oh, yeah. great movie. All right, anyway. I do like it. And it's better than being called, like, like your birth name is Ishka Bibble or... Uh, right, exactly. You know, Charles Did, Nelson yeah. Riley or... John Wayne you know. Bobbitt. Is Finn, really your middle, <laughs> is Finn really your middle name, or did you just make up a cool-sounding middle name? I, I found a different name in the family, yeah, and stuck it in there. Oh, so that's uh, not your real name? No. It's huh. a stage name, oh. Dave. It's a stage name. I went, to, I went to high school, though, with a guy named Lauren Green... Did you Which really? Was just a, yeah, it was an awful thing to do to somebody, I thought. Now, that's funny, because Lauren Green is uh, is featured in my novel, The Living Wills. There's a whole section 
about Lauren Green, which what? is actually not about your high school buddy. It's about the uh, mm-hmm. former Canadian actor. And the living will sold less than 2.5 um, Yes, so. it's in, in 19 fewer languages <laughs> than uh, politically yeah. correct bedtime stories. Now, I'm obsessed with numbers, guys. It's uh, all about the creative process. <laughs> you know how I knew that, you're, that this book was huge? When I bought it, I bought it at Walgreens. You know what I mean? That's Walgreens. When a book gets into Walgreens, that's like, you know, you've got your John Grisham. You've got, uh, you know, Daniel Steele. The Bible. God. <laughs> God's an author. And, you know. and James Van Garner. Uh, but anyway. And go my ahead. bodice rippers. You know, I, I did yes. pose in a, in a tight-fitting corset for my cover, but they didn't use it. Oh, boy. I'd like to get a copy of that picture. So anyway, your book is a New York Times bestseller. I think we've already established that. I, I think it's brilliant. I I laughed out loud as I read it, and I remember thinking, because this was kind of my shtick for years, the whole, uh, how ridiculous the the fairy tale stories that we were told as kids were, and how mean they were, and how, how, how uh, politically incorrect they were. Right, but, exactly. I mean, I used stories that were <clears throat> sort of sanitized, I used versions that were sort of sanitized, but when you go back to... Uh, Actual Brothers Grimm stuff. It's really grim. It is well named. Yeah. No, it's cannibalization. It's well, yeah. I grew up uh, with German parents, yeah. so I mean, they they would tell me these stories, you know, in the original form, and I would go to bed like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my 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 father, his favorite story was that Hansel and Gretel story where they leave the children in the woods to die. Mm-hmm. Did he ever tell you that story, like when he's driving out? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, uh, he actually one time gave my, my sister and I each a piece of rye bread and said he was taking us out to the woods to leave us there if we didn't stop fighting. Most pediatricians are not saying that's a particularly good form of parenting. But but anyway, the reason I bring it up is because uh, the ironic thing is that it's the political correctness that that started from your book that has vaulted a certain uh, political figure yeah. to the very top of uh, our uh, pyramid here in in America, and I'm going to call this your the, fault, the James Finn Garner yeah. presidency. Your fault. Because Love it's you too, guys. This is great. Bye. Because <laughs> I know you're a huge fan. But, um, yeah, I'm, I, yeah, I've got the tattoos and everything. The deal is when, back when the books came out and I was doing more readings with the public and stuff, people would come up and come up, uh, come up and say, you know, this isn't politically correct to say, but, and they would go off on the most racist, sexist yeah. things yeah. to me as if like, well, this is true, right? This is, this is real reality because you and I see eye to eye. So I'm always sort of walking this tightrope between I can't alienate a cash carrying fan. Sure, but you know, I'm not. I'm not going to say. You know, you're a troglodyte. You're you're what's wrong with this country, et cetera, et cetera. Because I'm a satirist, right? I can't be honest about these things. You've got to sort of do it in the uh, uh, indirect way. You got to do the backflip on them. So but every time somebody came up to me, and you've you've probably had it yeah. socially too. You go, on, you know, this isn't politically correct to say, but right. and you just like brace yourself for what's going to come. Yeah. Right. It, nothing ever good comes after the right. word but. Or uh, you know, <laughs> I shouldn't say this, but well, you know, right. I'm right. not racist, right. but right. right. That's true. But you know, I I, think, here, I just threw a but in there. Did you see that? Yeah. Um, the the thing that 
that uh, you must realize is that you, as a Twitter uh, person, you kind of put out there your actual beliefs. So have you just decided that you don't care about those fans anymore or what's your plan? I just, I, I'm not, I'm not going to educate them. You know, I think, I do think part of them, a good part of them is beyond redemption. So I don't, I'm not their mom. I'm not their, their uh, spouse. And, you know, if they're, if they're awful people like that, we just have to vote them out of office and, <clears throat> and it's a, and stop sending any kind of federal money to their states and just let them rot on the vine. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and the good part of it is, is a lot of them may have already bought your book already and the cash and the checks have yeah. been cashed. Right. So screw them now at this yeah. point. Right. Give them a piece okay. of rye good bread to, and leave them this, in the forest. This might sound cruel, but you know, <laughs> uh, have you ever thought of going now in the opposite direction during the Trump, Trump era and, you know, fairy tales for real men or something like that? Uh, years about six years ago, I wrote uh, Tea Party Fairy Tales when uh-huh. um, our when all the you know tax protesters uh, showed up in powdered wigs and guns and stuff at uh, at different <laughs> rallies in about uh, 2010. And I found it was really an awful experience to write it. Uh, it was um, the stories were short, mean, angry, and and uh, they were just really unpleasant. I did, however, get to do a lot of uh, Aesop fables in that book. Oh, fun. Because that's like Aesop all the way through. It's like, hey, life's like that, and you're screwed. (laughs) (laughs) And then you die. You're dumb. You're dumb, and dumb people die early. And that's, you know, that's about it. So uh, we we did, I did uh, explore that. I found it, I found it to be impossible to do anything about Trump because there's, there's nothing there in the core of him except himself. Right. And that's kind of like, a disgusting thing to think about. Well, he's really unsatirizable. I I believe, I mean, because it is the reality is so ridiculous. Well, I think he's a parody of himself to begin with. I think exactly. And he doesn't know it. Right. The target keeps moving. You think, Oh, this is the bottom. He he can't go any lower than that. He just like wait an hour and he has. So (laughs) he just kind of, there's nothing there, there. You know, he's just, he's just appetite and hairspray. And he's definitely committed to his shtick. You know, uh, my uh, I do one more fairy tale story for you. But when I was a kid, my parents told me the story of Max and Moritz. Have you ever heard this one? No, I've been to that deli so, though. It's really a, yeah, it's kind of like that. So Max and Moritz were two little boys, uh, Jim, who uh, who were told not to play in the mill uh, by their parents, and they didn't listen, and they went in and they played in the mill. And they were crushed in tiny pieces and spread out over the land to fertilize the crops. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> that's the story. That's the, it's a that's circle the, of life thing. And we'll be back right after these. <laughs> uh, so anyway, let's let's get off this. Let's get off the fairy tales. As oh, much I as we love have, those. One more German. I have one more story about oh, German good. fairy tales for you. I'd love um, to hear it. I met. Uh, the book was published in Germany. Uh, soon after it came out in America, and I finally got to see the cover when I was at some like book convention or something, and I met the German publisher. And the cover has those little elves with the red hats, and they're in the garden, and they're 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 raking and they're carrying wheelbarrows, and they're having great old time. And right up in front, there's one elf with a knife in his back, lying <laughs> face down in the grass. Oh my God, that's brilliant! <laughs> actually, that's awesome. And I meet I meet the German publisher, and I say. Why did you do that? I don't think I killed any, any, there was no street fighting in my stories. I didn't kill any elves. 
and he just said, "Oh, that's just something about German sense of humor." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the oxymoron, the German sense of humor. <laughs> uh, so anyway, as much as we love the bedtime stories, your Rex Coco series of novels combines two genres that have never been combined before in modern times, and that's that film noir sort of uh, dialogue with, of course. I'm expecting you to fill yeah, in the, uh, the other half of that. Oh, I'm sorry. I was asleep there. Uh, <laughs> film noir dialogue with people with narcolepsy. Yeah. No, uh, it's film noir with um, circus and carnival uh, subculture. A marriage made so in heaven. It, it's, basically, um, t- it's basically taking Chinatown and shoving it full of people from Gibson, Florida, you know, <laughs> who are washed up former performers <laughs> Um, bitter about being left behind. They were never nice people anyway. Yeah. You know, I'm playing off the, um, in history, circus people, except for Ringling Brothers, they were um, a little on the uh, fringy side of life. Yes. They were, you know, con artists and grifters, and, you know, uh, they got run out of their own hometowns and, and hitched up with the circus. So I kind of played with that um, kind of world apart feeling that you have at the circus and i shoved it full of uh uh gats and dames and uh mm. and uh, roscoe's and stuff like that and it really w- resonated with me i really thought it was a really wonderful slice of americana to um to exploit for this so. yeah well, well i i personally love it my wife is a big fan we've read all of them um and uh well and- so it's like so they take place in a in a, a little part of town that you go for a cheap good time. You know, you go there for cotton candy, and you go there for an animal act or a trapeze act, and a whorehouse, and a <laughs> and and everybody talks like know. they're in double indemnity. Exactly. Well, and what's, uh, you know what what's great is at your book debut or launch. I don't know what was it. Where was the one at the bookseller in Lincoln Square? You know, we always say you commit to the shtick, and you were just so brilliant at committing to the shtick. Tell the well, listeners. I do, um, excuse me. I do tend to, when I sell books at conventions and in public, I dress like Rex Coco, yeah, right. private clown. So I've got a long overcoat with big red uh, circles on it. And for my third book, I went to a bookstore in my neighborhood, and I said, um, may I bring in some fire eaters into the bookstore for a for the book signing? And she thought and thought and she thought and she said, well, I would do it, except uh, people do live above our store. So you, if you catch the place on fire, they'd be out. They'd be out on the street. So I took that as a maybe. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but then I uh, and I was worried, like I called the alderman to, say, to the office to see if this was possible. But um, for the signing, I hired two musicians to do a gypsy uh Gypsy Circus Music and uh, the Pepper Cash Brothers, and they did a uh, squeeze box and violin. And then I hired two uh, lovely ladies who ate fire and played with uh, flaming hula hoops and stuff. And if I could could have gotten a small baby elephant to ride across the street to the bookstore, I would have done that. But there's always book four. Yeah, I've spoken to somebody who's actually looked into uh, how much it costs to get a baby elephant. Am I right? Uh, well, well, I, it's. We all have our secrets, you know. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna, and it's uh, so it's the and the, the girls were, uh, the fire eaters were just hilarious because they were. I talked to a neighbor and she said, "Oh yeah, they used to uh, they used to practice in my alley. They used to drop their stuff on my car all the time." But 
So how? So how they're just neighborhood fire eaters. Pardon me. They're just the neighborhood fire eaters. Yeah, we do yeah. that. You know, it's what we—it's a city thing. How many gigs could they possibly get? I mean, how many Rex, Rex Coco openings are there per year? People do all sorts of events. You know, it's really, uh, um, you know, corporate events, and they there there was a whole website for these kind of acts that were a little bit more fringy. And uh, they stay busy. Oh, I'm not sure awesome. you can make a uh, career out of it, but they stay busy. So um, if people want to get the uh, Rex Coco books, where's the best place to get them? Uh, they can order them from the website, which is rexcoco.com. That's K-O-K-O. Um, there are three books Oops, now. There's a podcast it. of book number one, which I narrated and did all the... Um, uh, all the characters, including the midget policeman, and uh, it's brilliant. Mud flaps, Dave's, uh, Dave's the, looking the at me. He's who runs the burlesque house. Yeah, it's and um, that, or you can get them from Amazon. And right now, there is a you can find it online. My Christmas story uh, with Rex Coco and the Top Town people, which is called "Have Yourself a Monkey Little Christmas," <laughs> and uh, it has lots of monkeys and 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 some poop jokes. I'll, I'll warn you now, some poop jokes, but. Um, other than that, it's a heartwarming tale of of washed out kinkers uh, cheating each other at, at cards. Have you ever thought of writing like porn screenplays? Because I think your characters would be wonderful in a porn, don't you think? For porn? Yeah. Well, you know the internet. <laughs> you find out certain things, and there is a subgenre of porn called clown porn. <laughs> oh, is there really? Oh yes, <laughs> and, and that's why and, uh, you got to go in not, fifteen minutes, right? That's something I seek out, but it just uh, you know pops up. Um, but no, I have not thought of it, Rick. I, I, I'll I'll save the porn scripts for you know politics and stuff. Okay. I, I think that's a good idea. <clears throat> now you and I have gotten into uh, two musical fights on Twitter and Facebook. Um, <laughs> at, at one point, um, I made the case that if the Beatles had stayed together, that their 1970s albums, the early Mm -hmm. 70s albums, would have been better than the Rolling Stones. This Mm -hmm. apparently was a bridge too far for you, and you were outraged. Please make the the case. Well, for one thing, it's a huge leap to say if the Beatles had stayed together since they were basically kind of creating a part after 1968. Uh, And they... They so their creative time as a band as a foursome I would say was about five years long right because then it became yeah. a McCartney thing and a Lennon thing and George couldn't get a song in and blah 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 blah, blah. yeah so you have to get over that hurdle that they would stay together but their their actual creative time as a songwriting group was like five or six years right well yeah so, so fairly good years yeah well they were good years yeah, yeah. they were okay yeah and. um I would point out that the Rolling Stones had those strong songwriting years from about 66 until about uh, 76 with a couple of things popping up and, you know, Keith's blood, whatever. I just think the Beatles, marvelous as they are, um, come from a tradition that that is not at the bedrock of rock and roll. They They pursued Buddy Holly stuff and the Rolling Stones pursued Muddy Waters kind of stuff. And that is the... That is the core bedrock foundation of rock and roll is the blues. 
Okay, well, I so guess you this, can't I, yeah. go back to the. Uh, I've got you guys dumbfounded now. Well, you're no, no. Uh, considerably smarter than Rick. No, on, no, I, I've already Garner got my right coat here. on. I'm walking out the door right now, and, uh, we're, in, and we're in Rick's yeah. mom's basement too, which is awesome. <laughs> I, 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 won't very be, awesome. I won't be home when you come here. I won't be home when you get here, Rick. <laughs> okay, I, you know, I'm not going to debate it with you anymore. We did on Facebook, but I just wanted to let you get your uh, incorrect opinion out there. Um, That's fine. Then the other the debate that we had on Twitter in which I also outraged you uh, inadvertently. You two need jobs. <laughs> <laughs> no was uh, You were uh, on a Roxy Music uh, rant, and I pointed out that I kind of like the song Love is the Drug. Mm. And wow, uh, please uh, let our listeners know what, uh, what offense that was. Well, I mean, you could like songs. That's fine. I would not say that that's a good Roxy music song. I would say that's a terrible Roxy music song. But you can like it. That's fine. There are terrible songs we all like. But the crummy, cute lyrics, the uh, lack of good guitar work, uh, since Manzanero was no longer with the band, um, the lack of experimentation, the, uh, the lack of Andy McKay on saxophone, just makes that a throwaway party song you know instead of like remake remodel or uh, or even thrill of it all like a booming wall of sound song like thrill of it all um just knocks that song out knocks love is a drug out of the water okay it's, yes you can't sing along with some songs but it's like you know it's just not it's not in the same league it's just not yeah take that rick okay well i, I did i took it i took it i took i took not only uh take it again yeah <laughs> rick, and enjoy rick, it again. good for you you know i've been trying to take him down for 30 years thank you uh hey so how long have you been in chicago you're from michigan originally you've been in yeah. chicago forever right how long how long have you been in there? Pushing uh, more than thirty-five years. I got. A, I came here straight after college, so um, you know, because I didn't want to. I didn't want to buy a car. I did, I couldn't afford a car, so I had to move to a city with uh, with a train line. And you know, you're from Michigan. How is Chicago? Well, you've been here for thirty-five years, and you're only what thirty-eight. So yeah. basically, the vast majority of your life. Actually, it is more than. Uh, how is Michigan? You know, how has how has Chicago changed you? And what part of your Michigan soul? is never going to leave you, you know. Uh, you can't take the Michigan out of the boy. Type. Right. Probably with the Michigan soul, I would say, even though my family was not in the union, is union work. Hmm. You know, my dad was management, but I, if he were alive today, I think it would be, he'd be, he knows management does a lot of stupid things. And I think unions fight for the rights of people to not be exploited. And I think in general, um, that's something that has stuck with me. Also, you know, it, it uh, animates debates between myself and my wife, who is in the teachers' union here in Chicago. And it's kind of like, you know, I don't have to deal with the nonsense that she deals with, but it's kind of like, hey, honey, union. And she shuts up. Um, <laughs> but in Chicago, I think Chicago gave me a healthy taste for uh, try anything, you know, do something bigger than yourself because you're surrounded by. Uh, in, in Detroit, it was kind of like, get a job, settle down, hunker down, and just work, and, you know, you'll be rewarded. But in Chicago, it's kind of like, dream bigger, uh, screw more things up, uh, aim higher, and, it, and it's it's more inspiring that way. You know, it's a city that that invented social work. It's a city that invented the Tootsie Roll. Uh, it's a city that reversed its river. 
And it's kind of like, yeah, do something stupid, like reverse the whole flow of the river. So all the sewage goes downriver to St. Louis instead of staying in the lake. That's brilliant. Yeah, that That's is brilliant. brilliant. And then break the law to open the locks to make the river go. That's great. You know, <laughs> it's inspiring. Well, you're inspiring too, yes. and and uh, uh, we we are big fans of your writing, uh, and we are proud to be able to call you uh, Jim instead of uh, no, Jim Finn. You got to use the Finn. He gets really <laughs> pissed when you. I'm James Finn. Let's all get all handsy, guys. Come on. You know. We do this to everybody. You should have yeah. seen what we did with the San Diego chicken. When <laughs> oh was yeah, that was speaking of breaking laws. Uh, but thanks very much for being on the show and uh, continued success. And we'll be seeing you around. Thank you very much, guys. It was great to talk to you. All right, buddy. All thanks, right, take man. it easy. Okay. All right, we have to take a break. But uh, Minutia Men will be right back. I'm Howard Sudbury. I'm Steve Baskerville. And on the next back. Back to you, the very special guest, Dwayne Kennedy, stand-up comedian, Emmy Award winner. You yeah. renamed the show, didn't you? Yeah, the Ramble Brothers. Love me. <laughs> Back to you with Howard Sudbury and Steve Baskerville. Back to you, an Opie show, only on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Great talk radio isn't dead. It just moved a better place. Radiomisfits.com. Coming up on the next episode of the Car Guys Report, Informed Automotive, we talk about how stone martin weasels are wreaking havoc on cars in Germany, plus some five-cylinder cars you may have forgotten about. I'm Mark Vernon. Join me and Luke Costable for these stories and more on the Car Guys Report, a Tony Lasano podcast, an OPI production on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. And we're back. We covered the whole spectrum there. That's a funny guy. You know, whenever literature, uh, rock and yeah. roll, when you know, and you know, James lives in town, so yeah. we get to see him at book events. So I've gotten yeah, to know him pretty well. Yeah. Um, every time I get, you know, every time I'm like driving home after something, like, all right, that guy much smarter than me. Yeah, no, I know. I, I, you worry when you bring an author on that he's going to be a literary yeah. snob. He's not a literary snob. He's a music snob. Yeah, all right, and a <laughs> middle name snob. <laughs> I, I love the guy. I love him. Uh, so anyway, well, that's it for this week's edition of the Minutia Men Celebrity Interview. Special thanks to executive producer Tony Lasano with opishows.com. Opi is hippo backwards. O-P-P-I-H shows.com. Distributed by Ed Silla from the Radio Misfits. Great talk radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place. Radiomisfits.com. And we'll be back again next week with another edition of the Minutia Men Celebrity Interview. This OPI podcast was recorded at an earlier date. Some material may be outdated and or mentioned under different circumstances. Consult your local health authorities for the latest on COVID-19. The proceeding was a presentation of OPI Productions. Find our other great shows wherever you find podcasts, including opishows.com. Thank you. This has been a presentation of OPI Productions. Tony, can you shut up? On this week's Free Kicks with Adam and Rick, we talk about how the coronavirus is actually affecting European football. When Italy's locked down, and then maybe when other teams are playing behind closed doors, that's a big problem. No France, no Spain. You know the coronavirus is a problem. Uh, you find out more about that and all the other football news happening uh, in Europe on Free Kicks with Adam and Rick. Hey, and friends here, and I think you should listen to us. Why's that? Well, personally, I like dragging us down rabbit holes that have little to do with the conversation at hand. Yeah, you do that all the time. I think you're a professional at it. I'd like to be. I think that's my ideal job. Just to be the tangent man. How do you guys feel about peeing on a bus? <laughs> 
All that on And Friends, an OPI show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Great talk radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place. Radiomisfits.com.